to hear is based on eyewitness testimony and evidence collected before, during, and after an actual paranormal investigation. The individual's names and locations have been changed to protect the identities of all persons involved. We've all experienced a dream that seems too real, a room that seems too dark, a presence when we know we're alone. We exist in a world of many realities where the impossible is probable and the unknown can be known. This is the realm of the weird. During the formative years of my entrance into the world of paranatural investigations, I realized that I would need to be intellectually armed for strange and what could sometimes be frightening experiences. I knew that I would need to study not only the accepted scientific fields associated with paranormal phenomena like psychology, sociology, electrical systems, biology, but I would have to seek out broader fields of study which would help my understanding as I ventured deeper into unknown regions of our world. I studied hypnosis, neurolinguistic programming, I joined a guild of stage magicians and illusionists. I took theological classes and became ordained. I found people who considered themselves experts in feng shui, astrology, phrenology, divination, and various other so-called fringe sciences. I learned their craft and added it to my ever-increasing understanding of the paranormal. During the summer of 1993, I happened upon a young woman who was reading tarot cards at a diner in downtown Detroit. By this time, I had learned to do tarot card readings myself, but as I watched her, it became clear that our two styles were vastly different. During a moment when she was without a client, I approached her and introduced myself, hoping to learn something new. Her name was Virginia. She was 18 and told me that she had learned her practice from her mother. She explained that her family had a very long history with the magical arts, extending back to her ancestors who had been brought to the United States as slaves. We spent about an hour discussing magic, folklore, and similar topics when she asked if I would like to meet her grandmother. After everything we had discussed, I told her that I would be honored to meet someone like her grandmother who had so much knowledge and history of magical folklore. Virginia assured me that her grandmother knew more than just folklore, and that if her grandmother liked me, the experience would be something I would never forget. We exchanged phone numbers, and a week later I found myself standing on the front porch of an arts and crafts style bungalow in downtown Detroit, waiting for my first meeting with Auntie Lottery. I didn't know what to expect her to look like, but the woman who opened the door and now stood in front of me did not look like a 92-year-old woman. She looked older. To my surprise, she moved and spoke with the comfort and ease of someone decades younger. She invited me in with a big smile and hug, and before I knew it, we were drinking tea and conversing like old friends. I found out that Auntie Lottery and I had at least one thing in common. She had grown up in West Virginia, and my family had come to Detroit from West Virginia in about 1910. Although she had spent her youth in West Virginia, she had been born in New Orleans and as a child had spent time with an uncle in Mississippi. When I finished my tea, she without any prompting took my cup, upturned it, and began reading my tea leaves. 
As she did, she explained what she was looking at, how the leaves arranged themselves, and what their configurations meant. I was fascinated with her little lesson, and before I knew it, I had overturned her teacup and was telling her what the tea leaves said. I can say with absolute certainty that she was tickled to be teaching what she called a stringy suburban white boy. We parted that day with a calendar full of other dates when we could get together. Over the next two months, Auntie Lottery and I discussed everything from tarot cards and tea leaves to goofer dust and how to invoke spiritual loa, or as she called them, the invisibles. I was surprised one afternoon when she showed me her own personal mojo hand. I had heard of mojos or jujus before, but I had never seen one. She also corrected me when I called it a mojo. This was her nation sack. She explained how it was made and why it protected her from spirits and curses. The little red flannel bag looked ancient, and its contents were ominous. She told me that the next time I came for a visit, she would not only show me how to make my own mojo, since a nation sack was for women only, but just how powerful the old magic in that bag could be. We made plans to meet later that week, and I could hardly wait. When I showed up a few days later, she told me that we were going to be making a few trips, one of which would be to her sister's house. Over the past months, I had heard stories about Auntie Lottery's sister and the hard times that she had experienced throughout her life, including an abusive husband who had passed away two years earlier. When we arrived, I was warmly welcomed into the house. By this time, everyone in the family knew who I was, and I think I might have been a curious novelty to them. The three of us sat and talked about all types of beliefs and ideas. I even got to see Auntie Lottery's sister's nation sack, and they were teaching me how to construct my own mojo hand. As day turned to night, Auntie Lottery's sister, Marjorie, began to tell me about her husband, how he had been very abusive, very violent, and how she had, although not wanting death for anyone, found relief when he had passed away. Auntie Lottery stood up and retrieved two photographs from a curio shelf. One photo was of Marjorie and her husband, Tommy, on their wedding day. The second was a photo of Tommy laid in his coffin at his funeral. I've always found death photos mildly strange, but I understood the cultural differences, which to some people make them commonplace. We chit-chatted for a few more minutes, and then suddenly I was driving Auntie Lottery home. Before she got out of the car, she asked if I had a silver coin. I said no, and she explained that she would prepare one for me. She also asked if I could come by her house the next evening. I agreed, she smiled, and told me that, after tomorrow night, I would never think about things in the same way. Specifically, she said, I was going to really know about magic. I drove away not knowing what to expect, but I was overwhelmed with the excitement of the new experience. I arrived the next evening around 8 p.m., and after some tea and biscuits, Auntie Lottery retrieved a large coin from a table next to her. This coin, she told me, would keep me safe from all hexing spells, and especially from anyone controlling my spirit after I had died. I was told not to keep it on my person for fear that I might lose it or it could be stolen, but I was to keep it in a safe place wherever I lived. I thanked her for the large silver dollar and assumed that this was the piece of great magic that would change my life that she had spoken of the night before. Almost on cue, Auntie Lottery took my hand and told me that the coin wouldn't work until I truly understood the powers and forces behind it. 
Suddenly, she sat up and said, Let's go see Thomas Jefferson. I laughed. The president? She turned very serious and said, No, my brother-in-law, Tommy Jefferson. I sat not knowing what to say, but somewhere in my mind I figured out that we were about to make a trip to a local cemetery where Thomas was buried. As we drove, she directed me up and down side streets until I found myself parked in the lot of a nearby junior high school. Come on, Auntie Lottery said. She exited the car and made her way to a door near the back of the school. I never saw her knock on the door, but it opened, and there I stood, face to face, with Thomas Eugene Jefferson, Auntie Lottery's former brother-in-law, and the man I had seen in a photograph in his coffin at his funeral. Auntie Lottery pushed her way past him and motioned for me to go inside. I did, and I soon found myself sitting in a small break room across from a man that I had been told was dead. Auntie Lottery sat next to him, holding one of his hands. His lips were chapped. He was almost completely bald, but what hair he did have was starting to form itself into small, tight dreadlocks. His clothes were neat, his shoes were polished, but the most disconcerting feature were his unblinking eyes. Over the course of the 15 or 20 minutes that I was in his presence, I never once saw him blink. There was nothing behind his eyes. He never once looked at me, and the only time I ever saw any response from him was when Auntie Lottery said, Thomas, you want that coin? He immediately sat up straight. The one hand on his knee tightened and his mouth quivered. He seemed to want to speak, but no sound came out. Someday, said Auntie Lottery, and she patted him on the head. Now get back to work. He stood and exited the room. Auntie Lottery took my hand and we walked back to the car. On our way back to her house, we stopped at her sister Marjorie's. We just saw Tommy, she said to Marjorie. Marjorie acted unconcerned, but looked at me and said, That is him. I shook my head yes. We said our good nights. And we took our leave. When Auntie Lottery and I were seated back in her living room, she explained that because Thomas had been so bad while he was alive, he was being punished now. Is he really dead? I asked. Does it matter? She said. His job had been given to him through a friend of the two sisters, and he stayed in an efficiency apartment near the school. Auntie Lottery spoke about Thomas as if he were her property. It was the first time I had ever seen Auntie Lottery act any other way than loving. She seemed almost mischievous, bordering on malicious. It was frightening. I got his coin, she said. I instinctively reached to my pocket for mine. She saw this and smiled. She told me that as long as I continued to be a good man, I wouldn't have to worry about that coin, but that if I was bad, I should make sure that no one ever got a hold of it, or I'd end up like Thomas. I found out that, because of her being in control of Thomas, she and Marjorie were both worried about their own coins. We talked for a few more minutes, and I finally said goodbye and drove home. Both Auntie Lottery and Marjorie have since passed away. I went to both of their funerals and for a while I kept in contact with their family. As the years passed, 
I never forgot any of the lessons learned from Auntie Lottery, or the lesson learned from my late-night meeting with Thomas. I don't know exactly if Thomas had been brought back from the dead to pay for the mistakes that he had made during his life, but one thing is certain. There is a silver coin hidden in my home to ensure that once I die, I don't spend a moment longer than I have to dead, but alive in the realm of the weird. weird. weird.